Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Chase, and I'm one of the pastors here at Ignite Church. Uh, really excited you could be here this morning. If you're a first-time guest with us, I especially want to welcome you. Really glad that you would decide to spend uh, about an hour or so of your Sunday with us. Uh, welcome to Ignite Church. Truly believe uh, that, that people find family, people find restoration, people find Jesus in the local church. So thank you for taking time to join us this morning with this expression of God's local church. Uh, we are in a series called I Am, in a series called I Am, and this week we're in week five of seven, it's a seven-week series, and we've been looking at the seven revolutionary statements Jesus made about himself and why they matter today. We've been in the Gospel of John, which is one of four biographies of Jesus' life, and we've been looking at these massive statements, these claims that Jesus made about himself and why they still matter today. And we can say they matter today because how many of you know that God's word is not just an ancient word, it's a timeless word? It's a timeless word. God is always speaking through his word. If you want to hear a word from God, open the word of God. And so this morning, we're going to do just that. We're looking at Jesus's I am statements. And these are revolutionary. These are revolutionary because when Jesus said, I am, his hearers, his audience, including you and me, should think way back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, where Moses, one of God's uh, awesome servants and leaders, uh, had an encounter with the God of the Bible. And Moses was just in awe of this God, and so he asked this God, what is your name, and what should I tell others your name is? And God said, I am who I am. That is my name that is to be remembered throughout all generations. So God, the God of the Bible, creator of heaven and earth, revealed himself in the name I am. And so Jesus, hundreds of years later, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and today we're in John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when Jesus says, I am, make no mistake, he is saying, I am God. That's why this is revolutionary. In a similar way, the statements are revolutionary because whenever Jesus says, I am, that means we are not. These are statements that kind of cut at our knees. They kind of break down our pride because Jesus is saying, I am for you what you cannot be for yourselves. Right? So we're in week five, the first week. We looked at Jesus in John chapter six saying, I am the bread of life. And because Jesus said he's the bread of life, that means we are sustained. He's the only one that can meet our deepest spiritual longings, desires, and needs. In week two, we saw in John chapter eight, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. That means whoever follows Jesus will be saved from darkness and will have the light of life. Then in week three, our church planter, Pastor Cody, uh, got to preach from John chapter 10, where he unpacked the statement that Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Because Jesus is the door of the sheep, there's only one way by which we can enter eternal life with the Father. It's through Jesus, because he is the door. Then last week, Pastor Steve unpacked in the same chapter, John chapter 10, that Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he cares for, he shepherds his people, his sheep, you and me, by being trustworthy, courageous, being generous, and loving with his people, right? He is a good shepherd. 
And then this week, we're going to be in John chapter 14. We're skipping ahead in a few, a few months in Jesus' life and ministry. We're going to be in John chapter 14, where Jesus unpacks the statement, makes the bold revolutionary statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at uh, the first six, six verses especially, but we're going to take it through verse 7 today. Um, if you don't have your Bible, you can look on the, the big Bible on the screen behind me. So follow along with me as so we're in John chapter 14 this morning. These are the words of Jesus to his followers and his disciples. Verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, one of Jesus' twelve disciples or followers, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then our last verse, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is God's word to us this morning. Would you join me in prayer? And then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, we understand that you have spoken to us, preserved in your holy, good, perfect word. And we ask this morning that you would speak to us what we need to hear. God, that you would bring comfort to our wandering hearts. And God, ultimately, thank you that you sent Jesus to say what we need to hear so that all people can know the good news that Jesus lived a perfect life, died the death we deserve to die, and raised again to defeat sin, Satan, hell, and demons for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Here's the big idea that we're unpacking today. Jesus is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we'll get to that in a few moments, but we have some verses to cover before that. And before we go verse by verse and see what the text says and, and, and talk about it, I want to look um, at the setting. I want to be able to, to catch us up to speed so we know where we're at uh, in the life and ministry of Jesus. So we're in John chapter 14, and if you zoom out, John chapters 13 through 17 uh, refers to a portion of scripture that scholars, which means really smart Bible nerds, um, they refer to that as the farewell discourse of Jesus. John 13 through 17. Okay, the farewell discourse of Jesus. And basically, this is Jesus saying his final words before he says uh, goodbye to his disciples, right? So that's the farewell discourse, and understand that in the farewell discourse in John 13 through 17, it all takes place um, in, in one spot This spans just a few hours in Jesus' life. It really slows down um, in John chapters 13 through 17, and we find ourselves in John 13 through 17 with Jesus sitting with his disciples around a table, 
Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples. We see that in John chapter 13 especially. So they're in the upper room. Um, They're in a room all by themselves. It's Jesus and the 12 followers. And he's speaking to them as friends. This is an intimate setting. In, In Jewish culture, in biblical culture, to share a meal with someone was a very sacred thing. To break bread, drink of the cup together, was inviting someone into an intimate personal space. And a lot of good life-giving conversation happened around the meal. And many of you can probably attest to that, right? Your family dinner together. Uh, That's a practice that for many centuries, um, God's people have been practicing. And so Jesus is having a sacred, a special moment with his disciples around the table. Okay? And that's chapter, uh, John chapter 13 through 17. And I want to preface before we get into it, uh, this idea, you might remember over the last few weeks us touching on it, but Jesus spoke the I am statements uh, to three different groups of people throughout his ministry. And he engaged with three main groups of people throughout his ministry. We'll recap those groups very quickly. The first group was the crowds. Right in week one, John chapter six, we see that Jesus was addressing the crowds. And what we know about the crowds is that they were casual onlookers of Jesus' ministry, but they weren't willing or ready to follow Jesus. They hadn't count, uh, counted the cost of discipleship yet. And so they liked what Jesus could do for them, but did not want to give their lives to follow him. That's the crowd. Jesus isn't addressing the crowd this week in John chapter 14. The second group Jesus spoke to throughout his ministry is the religious leaders. These leaders are the ones that have more degrees than Fahrenheit. They're the elite of the day, right? They went to Bible school. They paid a lot of money to learn about God and the the Jewish customs and practices, right? They're classically trained scribes and leaders in the church. They were the religious authority of the day. Think of a really smart person. That was a religious leader. These dudes were really smart and actually too smart for their own good. And these people opposed Jesus' ministry. They were too learned for their own good, and their learning actually blinded them to see that Jesus is the embodiment of God, the God whom they studied. They were blind to that. So they actively opposed Jesus' ministry, and actually the religious leaders were the one that come onto the scene in a little bit. We're not going to get there today, but the religious leaders are the one that falsely tried Jesus, put him on trial, and ultimately got him crucified. Those are the religious leaders. John chapter 14, Jesus is not speaking to the religious leaders. He's speaking to the third group where Jesus spends a lot of time with, and these are his disciples. Literally, a disciple means follower or student, okay? Why am I telling you this again? Because it's really important, I need you to hear me on this, that Jesus' audience and who he was speaking to determines how we understand the words he spoke. Let me give you an example. Uh, Married folks in the room, how many of you know that you speak to your spouse differently than you speak to your child? Right? How many of you? Right. Okay. uh, Students in the room. How many students do we have in the room? Amen. You'll finish soon. Okay. Keep keep it up. Um, If you're a student in the room, you know that you speak to your professor differently than you speak to your peer or your friend. Try it the other way around. It doesn't work very well. Okay, you you speak to your friends differently than you speak to your professor. In the same way, when we read Jesus' words, we need to know to whom he was speaking because that determines how we understand and apply and obey the words of Jesus. So if Jesus isn't speaking to the crowds this week, 
If Jesus isn't speaking to religious leaders this week, that means he's speaking to his disciples, he's speaking to his friends. So if you're thinking about this, um, you might be thinking back to week three where Jesus said, I am the door. It's a statement of exclusivity, which means there's only one way to Jesus. There's only one door to get to the Father. Similarly, in this week's passage, Jesus is making the same claim. He says, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth. There's only one truth. And I am the life. There is no life apart from me. This is an exclusive claim. But I want you to notice the nuance. Jesus is speaking, not rebuking the crowds. He's not being harsh with the religious leaders like we've seen in the past. Instead, he's sitting at a table with his friends. And this determines how we should understand the passage in view. Okay, so here's my encouragement to you. A couple things. One, just as Jesus was sitting at the table with his disciples, sharing a meal, being friends with them, I want you to understand that Jesus desires a friendship and relationship with you. Jesus is not only Lord and Savior, yes, first and foremost, Lord and Savior, but he's also friend. I love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus' life, often refer to Jesus as the friend of sinners. The religious leaders, the really smart people, right? They would often scoff at Jesus and say, why on earth does your rabbi or why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Look, Jesus desires relationship with his people. And just as he sat and and developed a relationship with his disciples in John 14, he wants the same with you today. So would you, hypothetically, would you invite Jesus, would you give him a seat at the table this morning with you? Because he has words that I believe are not to rebuke, but to encourage and give hope and to, to strengthen your understanding of who God is and your faith that Jesus is worthy of all of your life. These are the words of Jesus, and they're words not of rebuke, but they're words to friends, his disciples, and they're words of encouragement this morning. Does that make sense? So we're going to, with that, that was just the introduction, by the way. Just going to throw that out there. That was just the introduction. So we're going in now, John 14, uh, verse 1. Let's, let's dig in to God's word this morning. So in 14, verse 1, we see the disciples, the followers, the friends of Jesus are in deep Pain, they're anguished, they're worried, because he opens up by saying, let not, Jesus, let not your hearts be troubled. Interesting way to jump in, kind of jumping in mid-conversation. Let's jump back a little bit and see what exactly was causing the trouble for the disciples. There are three things we see just in the chapter before, John chapter 13, okay? We see three things. First, uh, Judas Iscariot. How many of you are familiar with the name Judas Iscariot? Yeah, wrong team, not a good dude, right? Uh, Not on our team, okay? That's Judas Iscariot. And in John 13, what happened was Judas, one of the 12 followers of Jesus all throughout his ministry, finally left Jesus, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, and was not a friend after all. He was a false follower of Jesus. The other 11 disciples followed Jesus with their heart and their feet. Judas followed Jesus just with his feet. He had no heart, okay? He was not interested in the work of Jesus. Christ. And he betrayed Jesus. So Jesus announced that in John 13. said, look, I know you guys have been friends with Judas for several years now. You've shared meals together, live with one another. Uh, Judas, you're going to betray me. Get out and do what you have to do. That, that 
puts a little bit of a, a wrinkle in the plant, right? That, that's disturbing. A friend just left. Okay, second thing we see in John chapter 13, Jesus makes very clear, he's announcing to his disciples, I am going to leave. Remember, John 13 through 17 is the goodbye or farewell discourse of Jesus, okay? He's having the tough conversation with disciples saying, I'm going to leave earth. I'm going to accomplish what I need to accomplish. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to rise again. And then I'm going to ascend back to heaven and sit with my Father in glory. So their teacher, this is like a parent of theirs, okay? Leaving them. It's all they've known, They've dedicated their lives, years to following this teacher, and he's saying, I'm leaving. That's the second big thing. Really troubles them. And then the third thing, man, just, just the kicker. Um, Peter, one of the 12 disciples, uh, you know a lot about Peter if you read the Gospels. He's one of the main spokesmen for the disciples, okay? Great dude. And Peter was told by Jesus that he was, in fact, going to deny Jesus three times before his crucifixion. So let's zoom out. Here's why the disciples were troubled. They sit down to a meal. They're probably thinking, yeah, we get a meal with Jesus, right? We get to share friendship. We get to talk about how the day's been going, how the week's been going, right? Looking forward to a meal, dinner time with Jesus. And Jesus just drops three truth bombs on them saying, Judas, you're a devil. Get out. Second thing he says is, I'm leaving you. Goodbye. And the third thing he says is, Peter, before you get too arrogant, know that you're going to deny me three times. Oh, great, good, right? That's uncomfortable, okay? And you've probably experienced this before. Think about this. If you're, uh, think about the, the family dinner, the family reunion that you're having, and you're excited for a meal with your, your, friend, with, your, with your siblings and with your parents, and then that one guy, you know, that one family member brings that thing up, and it just, just ruins the whole meal. Anybody? Okay, that's similar to what's going on here in that it really ruined and really brought anguish and trouble to the disciples' heart. But the difference is, look, Jesus shared really difficult truths, but they're really necessary truths. You can see the heart of Jesus in sharing these difficult things and making these three difficult statements in John 13. What he was doing was he was preparing his disciples for the suffering, the reality that they were going to soon face. He had to send Judas away. He was not a true follower of Jesus. He had to leave because without Jesus leaving, he could not send the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. John 14 talks about that. And finally, he had to tell Peter, look, you're going to deny me three times, but understand that there's going to be redemption for you, and we see that at the end of the book of John. Okay, so Jesus had a purpose, make no mistake, but nonetheless, this shattered the disciples' paradigm for understanding their life, and this is all they've known is they've left everything to follow Jesus. Okay, so they're really, really troubled. They're really, really broken. They're really hurting. They're confused. So Jesus says, look, let not your hearts be troubled. Then he encourages them. He commands them, believe in God. Believe also in me. So the disciples are troubled, and what's Jesus' immediate solution? This is verse 1, by the way. What's Jesus' immediate solution? Believe in me. Believe in me. When Jesus talks about this belief, he's talking about a relational trust, a trust that only comes in the context of a relationship. I did this in the first service, and I want to do it again because it's kind of fun. Um, how many people in the room have been married for more than 25 years? Can you raise your hand? That's awesome. That, come on. That's awesome. Can we... Can we 
Praise God. That, that's awesome. Amen. Here's the big idea. Here's the, here's the point of, of doing that. Uh, to those who have been married for a long time, you know that there's a trust you have with your spouse that only comes with many years, many hardships of being in relationship with your spouse. There's that relational trust that doesn't come with a stranger, doesn't come with a friend you've had for five years. It comes with time spent with that person. That's the idea that Jesus is unpacking here. He's not calling them just to know about his work, but he's saying, establish relational trust in me. Trust me in this. Follow me in relationship. Make no mistake, Jesus is God. And Jesus is sure, trustworthy, and true. You might say it's a little early to be calling people to believe in Jesus, but understand, I'm just following the text. In John 14, 1, he opens his statement by saying, believe in me. Believe in me. And church, I encourage you to do the same. Believe in Jesus. You say, look, I've tried this believe thing. I've tried two, three, four, five different times. Church, the word stands. God knows you. God designed you. God created you. God knows your deepest needs, and therefore he knows the deepest things that you need and how to meet those needs. And Jesus says, look, you've, I, I can't say it any other way. Believe in me. Have relational trust in me. Jesus can be trusted and is worthy of your greatest, utmost trust. Jesus is. I encourage you, if you can, um, find a person that's been walking with the Lord longer than you have and just ask them, how has God come through for you? And they'll start to list the ways that God came through and saved their marriage. Man, God got money in their account when they thought they were gonna be on the street. Man, God healed their family member of a disease. Man, God faithfully sustained them while they were parenting their children. And all of the above, right? I encourage you just to do that. Get around the people and walk them with Jesus for a long time. And they'll tell you Jesus is worthy of everything in you. He's worthy of calling you to belief in him. And we're going to find out that Jesus is indeed the only way to settle our troubled and burdened and anguished hearts. That's verse 1. So Jesus understands that he doesn't just call us to believe in him blindly. But verses 2 through 3 of John chapter 14, he actually unpacks his plan. He lays out his plan. And we're going to run through this pretty quickly for the sake of time. But I want you to look on the screen behind me. I want you to look at your Bible. We're going to spend a few minutes just looking right at the text. And we're going to show that Jesus is calling his church to believe in him because he has a good plan for his people. Verses 2 through 3. Believe in God, believe also in me. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you, with, uh, take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus says, here's why you should believe in me, because I have a father and he has a home. That is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, in that home, there's room, not just for me, but there are many rooms for all of my followers. Then Jesus goes on to say, look, if it were not so, if my father's house were not this grand and this big and this great and that there's room for you, I would not have told you that there is room in my father's house. Jesus is saying, I speak the truth. I do not lie. There is room for you, all of you in my father's house. 
How many of you can relate? You can think about uh, even into older age, you have parents that, man, your childhood home, you're always going to have a home, uh, a room in your parents' house, right? It might look like a sewing room now. It might look like a, uh, you know, a little art room now. I, I don't know, right? But it's still your room. And you know that if you called your parents and said, hey, can we come and crash for a few days? They would say, absolutely. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, look, I'm the son of God. I have the father and he has room not only for me, but for all of my followers. In my father's house, there are many rooms. We sang that a few moments ago, right in our opening song. In the father's house, there's a place for Jesus's people. Then verse 3, continue in his logic. He says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. This is the hope of the Christian, that Jesus not only came once recorded in the Gospels, a time in history, but in fact, he's coming again for his church. He's coming again. Jesus is the soon coming king. That's the hope of the Christian. And he's giving his disciples hope. He's meeting their troubled hearts by saying, look, my father has a house. There's room for you in that house. And I'm going to come again. I know I'm leaving now, but I'm coming again. Make sure of it. And I will take you to myself. And I need you to catch this last part. What is the reason for Jesus doing all of these things, preparing a place, going to his father, coming back for his people? I love this little line. It's easy to jump over, but it's really important. He says, I'm doing all of this so that where I am, you may be also. I'm doing all of this because I desire a relationship with you, eternal relationship with you. I need to touch on just for a moment um, the fact that many of us believe the lie that God does not desire a relationship with his creation. If I may just touch on this for, for a moment, um, there are many here that read this or hear me say this and instantly knee-jerk reactions say, there's, there's no way Jesus would move heaven and earth to do that for me. And I say this because I love you. I say this because I care about you. I truly want to give you the truth of God's word in a loving manner. These might be hard words, but they're true words and they're good words from our God. Look, there are many of us that maybe we have a poor relationship with our earthly father. And so when we see that, man, maybe our earthly father doesn't think much of us or our earthly father doesn't want a relationship with us, we naturally project that onto our heavenly father and say, there's no way my heavenly father could love me. My heavenly father is mad at me, just like my earthly father is. Understand that God has a loving heart of a father for his children. Listen, one thing I have to encourage myself with often, encourage many people with often, is that for the person that is in Christ, for the person that has placed their faith in Jesus, God is not angry with you. God has no more wrath or judgment for you because he poured it out on his son for you. God the Father is a loving Father. Parents, can you think with me for a moment? that you would move heaven and earth to make sure your kids are loved and appreciated and, and valued to no end. In the same way, the father has a heart for his children that he will move heaven and earth. In fact, he will send his son Jesus to be crushed for his children. That's the father heart of God. So understand 
Jesus' words are true when he says, look, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. He has a room with your name on it in the kingdom of God. He desires relationship with you. So Jesus will come back again, he says in verse 3, so that where he is, we may also be. Jesus desires a relationship with you, and friends, he will return to have a relationship eternally with all those who trust and believe in the name of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news. That's the plan of Jesus. That's a good plan, amen? That's a good plan. Jesus will return for his people. He will be in relationship with his people for all of eternity. And we're going to turn a corner and begin to close here with Jesus' closing words. This is where our I am statement comes into play. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. We'll unpack those together in just a few remaining moments. He says, where I am, you may be also, verse 4, you know the way to where I am going. He says, look, you've spent years with me. I've talked about the kingdom of God. I've taught on the kingdom of God. You know the way to where I'm going. You know the way to my father's house. You will be there with me. And then Thomas. Thomas is one of those guys. He's one of the disciples. He's kind of like blessed Thomas's heart. Um, he's, he's doubting Thomas. You ever heard someone called a doubting Thomas? Because anytime Thomas is mentioned in the gospels, he's a doubter. It's like, I don't know if the biblical authors, the disciples just have like a running joke with Thomas. Like, you know, he's, he's the doubter. We're just going to throw him in as a doubter. I don't know. But anyway, that's my musing. Um, so Thomas here again is asking that probing question. He says, actually, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And before we hate on Thomas, before we judge Thomas, understand that this question is in all of our hearts. It's in all of our hearts. What is the way through whom do we have to go to find eternal peace to find eternal salvation to whom do we have to go where do we go and that's why we're always seeking things for satisfaction and fulfillment to calm that trouble and that angst and that stirring anxiousness and burden that's in our hearts day in and day out we're always looking for things to satisfy that we're all looking for the way. We're all asking with Thomas, how do we know the way? And this is where the words, not of rebuke, but of love and care, come into play. Jesus, in verse 6, says, Thomas, friends, disciples, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one will come to the Father. No one will be in my Father's house except through me. The Father's house has many rooms, but there is one way to the Father's house. Jesus makes it plain that it is only through him, only by him. Just as in John 10, Jesus said, I am the door. In John 14, he's speaking to his disciples and saying, look, take heart, have peace, because I am the way. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says to his friends, he says to his disciples, he says to his church, he says to you and me today, if you know me, you know the way to the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the way to the Father. If you know Jesus, you can rest assured that there is a house, that there is a room in my Father's house for you. In John 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and life to the full. 
I want to close by touching on two groups. There, there are really only two types of people in this room today. There are really only two types of people you ever meet. And um, I, I pray you hear this well. Um, the first group are those that believe in Jesus and have eternal life. He is God. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That's group number one. Those who believe, trust, and follow Jesus. Then there's a second group. Those that do not believe, know, follow Jesus. You say, how can I make such a broad statement? I'm not making the statement. I'm just delivering the mail. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You say, you know what? Christianity sounds really exclusive. That's unfair. Understand that Christianity is very exclusive because Jesus is the only way, but it's also very inclusive in that all who repent and believe in Jesus will and can be saved. So you say, man, I am troubled. Maybe you're thinking today, you're fearful. You're saying, I am in trouble. Friends, I have good news for you. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the path. I'm the truth, I embody truth, I do not lie. Jesus says, I am the life. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. I love what he says in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He encouraged his disciples by saying, look, if you know me, you know my father and you know the way to my father. So by means of closing, I want to say two things. One, to the group that says, I know Jesus, let this encourage you today. You know the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus loves his children. He has a place for you prepared. He will come again and take you to himself so that where he is, you may be. You can rest assured that Jesus is the good shepherd of his sheep. He will not lose one of them. And to the second group, you say, I'm troubled. You say, I'm in trouble. Let me share with you briefly what I hope is a word of encouragement and a plea for you today. The Father created all things, Genesis 1, and it was very good. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, literally man and woman, sinned. They rebelled. They went somewhere they weren't supposed to go. And because of that, this sin meant separation between God's good creation, his people whom he loved, and God himself, because God is holy, he is set apart. Sin separates us from the Father, and it mars that relationship between the Father and ourselves. God, knowing of this problem, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the life that you and I could not live, to die the death that you and I deserve to die, and to rise again, for our salvation. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is coming back for all who place their faith in Jesus' word and Jesus' work. Understand that God has a Father's heart for his people and he pleads with you and I plea with you on the Father's behalf. Come back to him. Jesus has revealed the way to the Father. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you come to the Father through Jesus today?